Join me as we welcome Alan, and thank you for being here, Alan. We're very grateful. Amen. I'd like you to turn with me to Second Corinthians in chapter five. I want to. I want to talk to you this morning, really, about the two motivations in a Christian's life. And I want to come in at Second Corinthians chapter five, at verse nine. Therefore, we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to Him. It's a great statement, isn't it? We make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. So there's an accountability for all of us. <coughs> it's a bit hard to know how that's going to work, but the Bible's very clear about it, that there's going to come a day when I stand before God and you stand before God, and you say, right, you knew the Lord for 47 years, and what did you do with those 47 years? And you say, well... I paid my tithes when I could and um, went to the meetings when I could and well, that's about it. And you get other people who maybe known the Lord and died within a few months and they've accomplished more in nine months than other people accomplish in a whole lifetime. And um, I want you to think of this because uh, imagine you're hiring some guy and you say to him, look, we, we were taking you on into our company and you're going to get paid <coughs> this very comfortable salary and it doesn't matter whether you come to work or not, we'll pay you the same salary and uh, it doesn't matter whether you do anything or not because you can't be fired. What sort of motivation is that guy going to have? And yet there's a kind of twisting of the gospel of Jesus Christ which tends to give that idea to people. Would you not agree with that? That... Uh, that the important thing is to be saved and once you're saved you've got your eternal life insurance policy and then well we're not really sure what to do with the rest of our life but the Bible isn't like that and, and it, it, it first of all speaks very very clearly of the issue of reward for Christians and accountability for Christians would you agree with that and it says we're all going to appear before the judgment seat of Christ and we're going to give account to him for the things done in the body, whether they are good or bad. And then it goes on after that to say, Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are well known to God, and I also trust are well known in your conscience. So, here's the first motivation. The motivation that Paul speaks about is what he calls the terror of the Lord. So the word is phobos or fear. In other words, he says, you know, God scares me. And, and uh, there's a motivation that keeps me in his service, which is the fear of the Lord. There's a motivation which uh, 
stops me crossing the line which is the terror of God and I know that terror of God in my own life and therefore it's a great motivation when I speak to other people there's a move going through the United States right now which you may or may not be aware of but I've hit it in several groups of churches and some fairly prominent preachers are now teaching this that God is so sweet we've so got hold of the kindness of God that we've lost the fear of the Lord and that God is so sweet and so lovely that uh, no one is going to spend eternity in hell and that's being taught by some pretty well-known people and it's being embraced by certain groups of churches that this idea of God punishing people of there being a hell for as a consequence of sin eternally is old-fashioned medieval terror stuff which is not part of modern Christianity have you come across this yet? well you will and, and I, wa I feel I want to just sort of um, get us back into the biblical balance then having said that come down to verse 12 I'm sorry, I just can't read it. Coming down to verse 12, for we do not commend ourselves again to you, but give you opportunity to boast on our behalf that you may have an answer for those who boast in appearance and not in heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it's for God, or if we are of sound mind, it's for you. For the love of Christ constrains us, because we judge that if Christ died for all, then all died. And he died for all, that those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. Therefore, from now on, we recognize no one according to the flesh, even though we once knew Christ this way, yet now we know him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things are, have become new, and all things are of God. So here comes the other motivation. He says, not only is the, does the terror of the Lord persuade me, but also, he said, the love of Christ constrains us. And I want you to see that balance running all the way through in John chapter 15 for example Jesus said several times to them he said look if you love me how will you prove your love for me you will prove your love for me by keeping my commandments so there's a love motivation I want you to think of a loving father that's brought up his kids correctly and, and they love their dad and he's put certain clear parameters of, about their behavior and they most of the time they, they want to please dad and they want him to be pleased with them because they love him but there comes a point when that line of temptation is very very tempting and they're thinking about crossing the line but they know that their dad loves them so much that he will he'll give them a good smack if they cross the line so there's a time and there are times when the love doesn't hold you but the fear does hello and they say if we cross that line dad's going to whoop us when we get home so it's not love that's holding them right now it's fear amen and, and we need to comprehend that in all our dealings with God our working for God in all our motivations to serve God sometimes it's the love of God sometimes it's the fear of God but either way God wants us to do his will amen
Now let's look at a few more things. Come with me now to Genesis 22. And see the men that really got places with God. Genesis 22, let's look at Abraham. He's just been told by God to take his only son, Isaac, and offer him as a sacrifice. And this must be totally inexplicable to him, totally unpleasant to him. Can you imagine what it must have been like to go through that? And yet somehow, the bottom line is, I know that God's good. I know that God's uh, made certain promises about my son. I can't understand this. It doesn't make any sense to me. I don't want to do it. Every part of me is reacting against it. But because I fear God, I'm going to do it. And as he's about to take the knife and kill his son, in verse 10, Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. So he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the, on the lad or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. In other words, I know you fear God because you are willing to, do, to obey me even to this point. And that's then God, you see, because God's got this sort of attitude, that there's a man who, when it doesn't make any sense to him, when love isn't sufficient motivation, when the love that he has for his son is so strong, and, and here is this incredible answer to prayer. Now he's being told to lay the thing down as a sacrifice. It doesn't make any sense to him. Nothing, no part of him wants to do it. But it's the fear of the Lord, we're told here, which he says, now I know that you fear me. Because you, you were willing to obey my voice, even this extreme commandment. I just wanted to put you to the test and see, Abraham, whether I really told you to do something really, really unpleasant, but you'd still do it. And so you don't need to do it now, because I know, that I know your heart. I know that you fear me, and I know that you will obey me. Now, Abraham, several times in Scripture, is called a friend of God. He had this intimate relationship with God. He and God had tremendous times together. There was a tremendous love relationship. And yet, at the same time, there was this godly fear. I want you to see that one does not exclude the other. They have to run parallel together. And sometimes there's a wrong kind of comprehending of the love of God, which leads us to a kind of um, a lack of respect a lack of honor and it brings us with disrespectful familiarity and I see this so much in in other people's lives I've seen in my own life and I know that when this fear of God became real to me and, and as I watch what other people do I think good heavens how can you do that don't you understand God don't you fear God you know what I'm talking about and and I'm looking back over what 44 years now of of walking with God in ministry and I've watched men who were my mentors, great examples to me and then I've seen something happen in their lives very often it's been a wrong relationship with a woman for example and this man that's, that mentored me and I, and I looked up to and had such incredible encounters with God he had visitations from God, saw angels I'm thinking of one particular man in South Africa I'm not going to mention his name and then suddenly one day we hear that he's left his wife and gone off with his secretary I think, dear God and he said, well God understands we, we know God understands <laughs> well within six weeks I'm sorry, within six months of that man doing that, he and his new wife that he just married were both killed in a car crash. And I believe that was a judgment of God. I don't believe that was an accident. 
Because he'd had such revelation. He'd seen such heavenly things and had been used in tremendous signs and wonders and miracles. thought, well, when you get that intimate with God and God reveals himself to you to that degree, you better not think that that intimacy leads you to the opportunity to just be familiar with God. Do you hear what I'm saying? And I felt this burden on my heart this morning. And, it, and I know it's a difficult message to preach, a difficult message to speak on. And I can see you're absolutely thrilled with what I've said so far. <laughs> but but I, feel, I, I feel that, that somehow this... You know, God's going to come in mighty revival in the United States of America. He's going to come in, in a powerful presence that we've probably never known before. We're going, to, we're going to be moving in a generation that's never really walked with God. Like David, when he finally brought back the glory and the presence of God, that whole generation had never known God at close hand. They'd known 70 years of God being remote and far off, and there was no one in that generation that knew how to walk with God. And even when David tried with the sincerest of heart to bring back the powerful presence of God, he did it all wrong and he ended up being angry and afraid. And David was the most intimate man. He could worship, he could love, he knew the love of God and he wrote these tremendous psalms and yet what he had not really learned yet was how awesome and fearful God is at close hand. And I've watched uh, just in these last recent years as certain movements have taken place like say Toronto and, and then down in um, Brownsville and I've seen churches sort of open their doors to God and yet not be ready for God when he can. As a result, instead of it being a blessing, it's ripped the church to pieces because there's only a small minority that knew how to live in the presence of God and there was a large majority that didn't know how to live in the presence of God but even worse, they didn't want to change to be compatible with God. I remember a tape years and years ago by Bob Mumford and he said in this tape that he was praying one morning and God came to him and said, Mumford, you and I are incompatible and I don't change. So if you and I are going to get closer together, you're going to have to do all the changing, son, because I'm not changing. And I, I feel that, 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 that as we look across the United States of America, we look in, I mean, look, we've all just read the recent scandals in the corporate world, and you see there's a rottenness working in our nation at every level that God is going to come and deal with. And, and I'm sure that many of those people who have been fiddling all those accounts, many of them have been faithful churchgoers, faithful tithers. Would you not agree with me? I bet, I bet that's true. I've not checked up on them. But I'm sure they've got the superficiality of, of good Christian lives. And yet the thing is, when the, the bottom line comes in, there's no real fear of God. There's not a terror of the Lord which stops us from crossing the line when it comes to, well, I could make a few thousand bucks by just falsifying this bit of paper or making a little lie here. What harm's that going to do? Well, if you fear God, you can't do it. Sometimes the love of God isn't enough. You think, oh, hello? And here we're talking in the context of 2 Corinthians 5. We're talking in the context of having a responsibility to see men and women saved. He said, now the love of Christ constrains me. And most of the time that's sufficient motivation. But when the love of Christ doesn't constrain me, the terror of the Lord motivates me. Knowing the terror of the Lord, I persuade men. Because sometimes the love motivation isn't strong enough. 
Sometimes the love motivation would allow me not to bother to get distracted, to go and do compromising things, to just be dishonest or to be a liar or to, to just uh, not do that thing with complete integrity. So when I come to that sort of situation, then I find that the fear of God kicks in because I know if the love isn't going to motivate me, then the fear will. And you'll find all the great men that work with God are like that. you find that with Abraham, there's this incredible fear of God. It was the fear of God which made him take Isaac to that hill and be willing to sacrifice him. It wasn't love. Love wasn't enough to motivate him to do that. But fear was. When God said, you don't need to do it, Abraham, because I, now I know that you fear me. And then... To a man like that, he makes these incredible promises. Let's just read on in Genesis 22. By myself, verse 16, I have sworn, says the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, blessing I will bless you and multiplying I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven and as the sand of the sea, which is on the seashore, and your descendants shall possess the gates of their enemies. In other words, there's a, what I'm going to call, there's an Abraham genealogy and, and it's characterized by this love and fear. Abraham's the friend of God, he's intimate with God, there's a tremendous love relationship and yet, as well as that, there is this very, very awesome, healthy fear. And God says, I'm going to use you to start a generation. A genealogy, a, a, a line of promise, a line of blessing, a seed is going to come from you. And of course the seed finally becomes the Lord Jesus Christ. And that seed goes into the ground and dies to bring forth seed after its kind, which you and I are today. So we're the seed that God was speaking to Abraham about. That's all made very clear for us in Galatians chapter 3. Is that okay? So if we're of that line of lineage, we're of the same seed and we've got the same heart. We have an intimacy with him. We know the love of the Father. We can sit on his knee and call him Daddy. But if we cross the line into disobedience, then what we feel is the smack of God and the fear of the Lord. And that's what keeps us on track when nothing else will. And that's when God can then get us to do things which are unpleasant. Because love will not necessarily motivate us to that end. But fear will. And I want to encourage you, as I've been encouraging myself over these days, to, to rekindle a healthy fear of God. Because when God comes in awesome presence, then that's what's going to keep us doing the right thing in the right way. David had to learn on the threshing floor of Arona what it was to have God come in, in presence. And then he learned to live with him. Then he built the tabernacle of David. He lived in this intimate, incredible relationship with God. But in his, in his Psalms, again and again, the fear of the Lord comes out. You read the book of Proverbs. How many times does he talk about the fear of God? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, we're told. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, we're told. The fear of the Lord keeps us from all evil, we're told. The fear of the Lord is the motivation that keeps us on the right track. And I want us to, to, to let the intimacy and the presence of God bring that fear in us. If you go to look at Moses, come with my, for a moment with me to Exodus 33. I've got, once you start on this, there's so much in Scripture. Exodus 33. And here... 
God is coming down to his people. And God has a problem. That, that Moses and a few others, Joshua is named, but the others are not named, a few others are able to live in the presence of God because of the fear that they have as well as the love that they have. That fear motivates them to living in a right way with God. But the rest of the people live in a casual way which makes it impossible for God to come near them. So when God comes down to meet with his friend Moses in the tent of Moses, then the presence of God coming to Moses has an, a, a destructive effect upon all the rest of the people of God because they're not living right. So God has a problem. He loves Moses. He wants to have intimacy with Moses. Moses is living before him with a right fear relationship. So there's a righteousness, there's a holiness upon Moses. Joshua is of the same heart and spirit. A few other unnamed people are like that. And they meet together in a little tent called Moses' tent, which is not the tabernacle of Moses. It's a little personal place where, where Moses and and God and a few others used to meet and have fantastic times together. And it was, it was the fear of the Lord which permitted that sort of relationship. Okay? But the rest of the people of God, they lived casually, and they weren't so concerned about all these things. They wanted the benefits of God, but they didn't want the presence of God. Hello? So God, in coming to Moses in intimacy, his very presence coming to Moses in intimacy had a destructive effect upon all the other people that were living in a half-hearted, compromised, typical average way. So God ended up destroying them without meaning to. He said, look, we're going to have to solve this problem. Moses, what you're going to have to do now is, Moses, take your tent, take it way, way, way outside the camp. Then I can come to you outside the camp and my presence will not be destructive on those who are only living in a half-hearted way. Because my presence destroys sin. I can't help it. It's just my nature. If I come, sin is destroyed. Whether I'm thinking about it or not. That's what you feel about God. It's just his presence that is destructive of all sin. And so he said, well, I will do, Moses. I'll come and meet you in the tent of intimacy over here. And we can have these great times together where I'll talk to you as a friend, face to face. And we'll have this glorious time because you fear me and you love me and you're prepared to live to the standards necessary. But for all the rest of these people that won't live that way, we're going to, have to, going to have to build a new tabernacle called Moses' Tabernacle. It's going to have three compartments. It's going to have the outer court, the holy place, and the holiest of all. And they're never, ever, ever going to come into the holiest of all because if they did, it would destroy them. And in that tabernacle of Moses, we're going to deal with sin. They're going to be able to bring their tithes and offerings so they get blessed financially. They can come there to get their healings met so they can get all the benefits of God without ever meeting God. Hello, did you hear me say that? And so the majority of people preferred Moses' tabernacle because they got the benefits of God without ever meeting God. Even the high priest only once a year went into the holiest of all and even that scared him to death. And he went through a very uh, a strict ritual to go into God's presence for a few hours to offer sin on behalf of the people but he was absolutely terrified that he might not come out alive. They tied a rope to his ankle so that if he did drop dead they weren't going in to get him. They were going to pull out his body. And here's Moses over here with the few other boys enjoying God's presence in a face-to-face -face intimacy which these people never knew because they wouldn't pay the price for knowing it. Moses 
is recalled again and again, the friend of God. It says this in Exodus 33, it says it in verse 11. So the Lord spoke to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend, and he would return to the camp. But his servant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, did not depart from the tabernacle. So Joshua had this same God-hungry heart. And here's the interesting thing. Everybody who had this God-hungry heart, who was prepared to pay the price, who lived in the fear of God, as well as in the love of God, these guys were raised up by God to be mighty generals that were nation-transforming people. You think of Abraham, you think of Moses, you think of David, you think of Joshua. All these guys were God's mighty generals that brought about transformation. So if we will pay the price, it not only affects us, but it affects the very nation in which we live. We become nation savers if we will pay the price, beloved. And I believe God's calling out for men and women who will go to that degree to so live in his presence and so obey him that the fear of the Lord, as well as the love of God, becomes their motivation. They'll pay whatever price, Lord, I'll pay whatever price necessary to live face to face with you just like Moses did. And there are men and there are women in this nation, thank God, who, who are prepared to pay that price. And they're the ones that God's going to use to save the nation. And I want to qualify, don't you? And that fear motivates me as much as the love does. I love God, I love the love of God and I have such intimacy, but all the time it's, it's mentored by fear. Now, as I said earlier, Abraham was a seed that began a line that God said, now that's the line of promise by which I'm going to bring my kingdom and bring my salvation to the whole earth. And that's going to, that line is going to reap a mighty harvest. It's going to be so numerous that you can't even count it any more you can count the stars in heaven or the sand on the seashore. It's that line, it's that line of the seed. And I've mentioned some names very, very quickly because I haven't got, a, I haven't got a two months to go through the whole Bible with you, but are you getting to hear what I'm saying? Now I want to come now to the, towards the end of the seed and come to the Lord Jesus. I've got the wrong notes, I didn't even notice. I haven't even looked at them yet. Okay, here we are. I want you to come with me to John chapter 15. Let's come to verse 6. It's very familiar, but let's listen to it. If, if anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch, and he, he and is withered, and they gather them and throw them into the fire, and they are burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, you will ask whatever you desire, and it shall be done for you. Isn't that incredible? By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, so you will be my disciples. As the Father loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I've spoken to you, that my joy may remain in you, and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Verse 14. Well, greater love than this has no man, than he laid down his life for his friends. Verse 14. You are my friends if you do whatever I command you. Here's the measure of the thing. No longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing. But I've called you friends, 
for all things that I have learned, heard from my Father, I've made known to you. You didn't choose me, but I chose you and I appointed you, I located you, that you should, you should go and bear fruit and that the fruit should remain. And whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you, that you love one another. Now notice that he's not giving them a little bit of friendly advice. The word is command, 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 command. And he's saying, now I'm getting you now to live in relationship to me the way that I lived in relationship to my father. I live with my father that way. I love him, and I love him enough to keep his commandments. And as a result, because of that relationship, I can get answers to my prayers because of that relationship. In fact, whatever I ask the father, he will do it for me. But I can't have the benefits without the responsibilities. Amen? Now come to Hebrews in chapter 5. So here's Jesus in this passage emphasizing the incredible love relationship he has with the Father and telling us that that's the motivation for the way that he lives and the way he obeys his Father. Now come to Hebrews in chapter 5. He's talking about Jesus becoming Melchizedek the high priest, which I certainly won't go into this morning, but come to verse 7. Who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him, who was able to save him out from within death. That's what it literally says in the Greek. In the Greek there is a, in the Greek language there are little prepositions which have movement. There's one here which is used, it's ek in Greek, it's just two letters, ek. And it has the idea of being inside something. And then you come up out from inside what you were in and you get out from within it. Because I've read this passage for years, I, thought, I don't understand this because it says that Jesus was heard. That he might be saved from death, he never was. But then I realized that what we're being told, he wasn't saying, Father, I don't want to die. He's saying, Father, that when I've died, when all the weight of Adam's sin has come upon me, when death has got hold of me more strongly than any other man, because of the weight of sin that I've taken in my body, and because I've taken the whole totality of the sin of Adam's race, and when death has pulled me down deeper into hell than any other man, millions of times over, if there's one person that should never, never, never have risen from the dead, it's Jesus, because of the weight of sin that he was bearing in his death. Do you understand that? But before he ever went to the cross, he was fighting a battle in the Garden of Gethsemane. It was a fight of faith and he was obtaining his resurrection. And he was fighting his battle with great sweat and tears and he was waging war in the spirit and he was claiming that even though he was going to die and <coughs> death was going to so powerfully grab him and so powerfully put him down Excuse me. And sin was so going to so get hold of him that in his death he would be more filthy with sin millions of times over than any other man. Yet it wasn't his sin, it was everybody else's sin. And death could say, ah, we've got you. We'll never ever let you go because the sting of death is sin. And this wonderful man is fighting a fight of faith. He's saying, Father, I'm praying that although I'm not asking not to die, I'm asking that by the power of God, you will bring me out from within death. And he said he was hurt. He was hurt. Because he feared. That's what it says. And so, I want you to see that the Lord Jesus feared his Father as well as loving his Father. And when it came to the cross, 
And when it came to these incredible battles, when it, when it came to the absolute revolting, I mean, I can't imagine what it was like for the sinless Son of God to be willing for the whole totality of Adam's sin to come upon him. The revolting, foul filthiness of it must have been so horrible. Oh, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. It wasn't the physical dying that was bothering him. It was being contaminated with all that sin. And it seems here, it wasn't so much the love, it was the fear that kept him. He walked before his father as a great, obviously the greatest lover of his father. But when the bottom line came, it was fear that kept him obedient in the hardest things that he had to do. Can you see that? He walked in fear as well as walking in love. And he was heard because he feared. Because he had, the word is phobos, he had an absolute fear, a reverential fear of his father. Moses said so many times, he said, do not fear, only fear God. And it's interesting how when the fear of God really, really grips you, it, it is so strong that it delivers you from all other fears by comparison. If I've got to choose between a healthy fear of God and an understandable fear of man, the fear of God, if it's healthy within me, will always keep me in the right track because there's nothing like the fear of God to keep you on track. Amen? And that's the one fear that we are exhorted to have. And that one fear which we're exhorted to have surprisingly delivers us from all other fears. That's the way to get free from fear. If you fear God, you can't fear anything including death. It has no power over you. And it's the fear of God which brings you into intimacy and relationship and gives you uh, the power to know the revelation of God's love in a way that you cannot know it in the other way. Does that make sense to you? I'm sort of talking words I can hardly get into words. I hope it's making sense to you. But I know what I'm talking about because it's real experience to me. Has that got hold of me? And as the fear of God gets hold of me, and this is the interesting thing, the fear of God getting hold of me doesn't make me flee from him, it makes me run towards him. It makes it, it much more possible to live in intimacy with God because my relationship with God requires me to walk in fear before him. The very intimacy that I'm longing for comes to me when I take a fear attitude towards God and he has the, knows my heart, knows the fear that I have, then, then there's nothing he needs to hide from me. Nothing that he cannot, uh, doesn't need to keep hidden because he says, this man so fears me, he's never going to go off track. Now I know that you fear me because you've done this, then you're going to be the line of the sea which brings mighty salvation to millions and deliverance to nations and brings my kingdom powerfully across the world. If God can find men and women like this, then they will be the, the, the generals, the warriors of great powerful armies which bring about the purposes of God upon earth. You think of the line of that seed and the, the line of those who walked in fear and love and I tell you, I want to be part of that company, do you? But coming back to 2 Corinthians 5, just for a moment, let's just come back and close there. We've got a couple of minutes to go. I guess if you're gripped by a very real fear, you don't really think about your public appearance anymore. Amen? If you suddenly wake up in the middle of the night to find 
the house is on fire and you rush into the children's bedroom, you don't say, well, look, put on some clothes. We can't go outside without being properly dressed. You say, get out the place. I mean, all norms are abandoned because of the motivation of that fear. And, 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 and I want us to say, God, I want your fear to come upon me, not only because I walk right with you, but because it has an amazing motivation to get men and women saved, which is where we are here. Knowing the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. I'm totally convinced that every man and woman that does not receive Jesus Christ as their Lord and Saviour is going to go to a terrible eternity called hell that's unbelievably awful in its... In its um, I can't even describe how awful it is. Now that's, that terror motivates me. And if I, if I violate certain social protocols to get men and women saved, I couldn't care less about it. Amen? Paul says, well, if, if we are beside ourselves, it's unto God. People say, you're, you're nuts. All you're ever concerned about. Yeah, well, if you've got this fear in you, you are so concerned about this that you do want men and women to be saved. Knowing the terror of the law, we persuade me. It was Jonathan Edwards, one of the great preachers in the United States. His motivation was the terror of hell. He saw it. He, he, he experienced a, a revelation of it which so motivated him he could not stop pleading with men and women to be saved. Every opportunity that he could get, he would speak to men. Whether it was a public meeting, whether it was a private situation. And I'm saying, Lord, I want that... I want that terror to come upon me because I, I have to confess that I'm half-hearted because I haven't got that fear motivating me. I'm not beside myself. I'm perfectly happy to live in this world and do a bit of evangelism on the side and that's not acceptable to God. I don't want to live that way. I want the fear of the Lord, the terror of the Lord to move me to persuade men and women. And then you come down a few verses and then it says, and the love of Christ constrains us. When you've come to know God and know his love and know his presence and know his, his delivering power, his transforming power, I mean, man, you want everybody to just in, enjoy and experience what you've experienced. And so you've got these two great driving forces, beseeching men and women, beseeching men and women to be saved. And I believe in the marketplace we've got a, a unique opportunity. I mean, I, I lived in that world for quite a few years as a... And all I was there for was to tell people about Jesus. I mean, I was good at my job, I was successful in my career, but that was never my motivation. My motivation was, I can get hold of people. When I went to India, I never went as a missionary, I went as a technical consultant, and I was able to get in all those business uh, areas where people don't normally get, and, and I was introduced to people, oh, this is Mr. Vincent, he's our foreign consultant, he's a... Uh, a great expert in his field, but all he does is he wants to talk to people about Jesus. That's how I was introduced. Because that's, that's who I am. Whether they were Muslims, whether they were Hindus, whoever they were, I wanted to talk to them about Jesus. I wanted to get them saved, and I did see many saved. Because I was being driven by something. I went to lecture in Bombay University, not because I needed the money, but because I wanted to get amongst the students. And I could talk to them about Jesus. I didn't find one student in Bombay University that was a convinced Hindu or a convinced Muslim. It was just their family background. And they were a ripe harvest field. But you never get them to go to a church. You never get them to go to a Christian meeting. But if we get in amongst them, 
in, in, if you like, the credibility of our profession. And we are, we are better at our job than most people are, and yet we still are un... And we're beside ourselves to talk about Jesus, then these guys think, well, this guy, you know, he's not doing it for money. He's not doing it as a profession. He's being driven by something which I need to listen to. Amen? And we can change our world and change our society. Motivated by the fear of God and by the love of God. It'll keep us on track so we don't cross the line into any kind of sin. It'll keep us in intimacy, increasing intimacy of relationship with God because the fear of the Lord allows him to be our unconditional friend because we will not, if you like, exploit the relationship wrongly. And it drives us with a force that nothing else will to get men and women saved. And I'm asking God for that fear to come upon me in ever-increasing measure and alongside the love which I so richly enjoy. It'll keep me on track. It'll keep me beside myself so that when I stand before him on that day of judgment, you say, well, Alan, you've used your time well and I'm pleased with you. That's what I want to hear. You were on earth for 97 years and after you got saved, you didn't, you didn't waste a minute. That's what I want to hear. Amen? Because I believe I'm going to stand before the Lord and give account. And I want to be ready to give account. I want to be ready for that day. But in the meantime, I want to be thoroughly and fully active in His service. I want the, the fear of God to come upon the church because I think it's a missing ingredient in the Church of the United States right now. I think a lot of careless, loose living is because there's no fear of God. As Paul says in Romans 23, he says there's no fear of God. It's the lost dimension. I want to pray for it to come down with great force upon the church of Jesus Christ so we become the kind of church that's going to change our nation. In Jesus' mighty name. Amen. God bless you. Oh, I should mention that we did bring a few tapes. People were asking me about tapes, so we brought a few tapes here and also there are catalogues of all the stuff we have. I also brought a number of copies of a new book by Ed Silvoso. It's called anointed for business which is um, a book which I thought many of you would find powerful and and uh, extremely valuable to read Let, let's pray Father open our eyes to comprehend this this paradox this contradiction that we might know the terror of the Lord and persuade men. We might, at the same time, be motivated by love. We can live with you in loving intimacy and yet never abuse that privilege by a wrong familiarity. We pray, Lord, that we are the kind of people you can draw near to. You can speak to us face to face as your friends. You can tell us everything you're doing just like Abraham, just like Moses, just like Joshua, just like David, and supremely just like our Lord Jesus Christ, living in the intimacy of love and yet at the same time being controlled and motivated by the reverential fear that we have towards you. We pray this will become real.
powerful and very, very motivating in all of our lives. In Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Let's connect right now.